0: Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 20 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that goes a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry, and I'm joined today by two guests. One you know well if you read the magazine and listen to this podcast, and one you probably know not at all. My first guest is Judd Spicer, a longtime contributor to the magazine and a regular guest on Beyond the Page. He has an important story in our June issue, available online right now and in your physical mailbox soon, about bilingual superintendents. Judd is pretty much our West Coast correspondent, and while you do hear Spanish more often on courses in and around California... There are courses in Texas and Florida and so many other states that are becoming more and more bilingual, if not trilingual or quadlingual, or even beyond that in some instances. You will definitely want to read Judd's story, along with Tim Morgan's column, Como Sedice. My second guest is Jack Gleckler. He's our summer intern. He's also a rising senior at Ohio University, where he will be sports editor of the student newspaper, The Post in the fall, a position I held, who, 17 years ago. Jack is also a not-all-that-long-ago captain of his high school golf team, and he still plays pretty well. He has a short story in the June issue about Trent Manning, the equipment manager at Ansley Golf Club in Atlanta. Trent is the host of the excellent Real Turf Talk podcast, where every episode features a conversation with a different equipment technician. Go, Download a few episodes of that show after you finish listening to Be On the Page. Jack Leckler and Judd Spicer. After the break. My first guest on Beyond the Page, again, a regular name and face to golf course industry readers. He is our West Coast correspondent, Judd Spicer. Judd with a fantastic story in the June issue, Language of the Grounds, part of a two-story package in the issue along with Tim Morgan's Inside the Ropes Column, Como Se Dice, How Do You Say, the importance of speaking Spanish and being bilingual on the course. This is a great story, and I am very excited to talk with Judd about it. Judd Spicer, welcome back to Beyond the Page. How are you?
1: Thank you for having me back on, Matt, and um, maybe your listeners are tired of hearing this, but it really is a pleasure to, uh, to write for you guys, to work with you guys, and uh, I wish I would have come up with this particular story idea myself. This
0: came from uh, Guy Cipriano, and it was a terrific
1: idea for an article.
0: Well, a terrific idea, but you executed it and you reported it so well. You talked with five turf pros, and again, they're all from the West Coast, so there are more Spanish speakers, and there's a probably even larger Latino population in California, and especially Southern California, than a lot of other pockets around the country. But the Latino population as a percentage is only going up every 10 years, every census. And so this is a skill. Uh, Just like knowing turf, managing people, this is a skill that all turf pros are really going to have to have constantly moving forward.
1: Uh, We do have the one uh, gentleman uh, from Florida, should probably um, interject that. And, uh, you know, I should also say that in hindsight, and looking at some of those numbers and some of those national demographics, yeah, Florida and California population-wise have two of the top three largest Hispanic populations in the country, Texas being number two, as you might have guessed. I think New York is pretty close to Florida. So if this is something that we ever revisit, probably talk to
0: um, superintendents from those two states as well. Rafael Barajas, of course, at Boca Grove Golf and Tennis Club in Boca Raton, a familiar name to a lot of listeners. He was the first Latino president of the GSAA back just two years ago. Big name in the industry and, and The first person you quoted in the story.
1: Yeah. And it's probably also worthy of mention that per the California um, he's been in Florida for some time, but he was first here in uh, California and we all know, Matt, it can be a small golf world. Sometimes his, uh, I think his first head superintendent job was about two miles from my house here in Palm desert, California, as it turned out, total coincidence.
0: So, in your reporting this story and then in your writing it, without giving away too much, because I definitely want folks to read the whole story online. Don't just take Judd's Cliff's notes, read Judd's whole story uh, online later this week. Um, what did you find? Because it sounds like, at least <coughs> in California and again with Rafael uh, over in Florida, the consensus among the folks you talked with, four out of five, at least know some Spanish and are trying to learn more if they aren't native speakers themselves. What is, what is the general scope at least in California and Florida? Is it, is it a skill that is spreading and developing?
1: should probably even preface that by saying that one of the interesting things, maybe the most interesting thing about putting this article together rather Matt was that when I got the assignment from Guy It's one of those articles that you kind of go into expecting one thing and then walk out with a broader theme. And I wasn't sure which direction this article would go because I kind of thought it would be a a culturally based article, which, again, was a great idea for, for an article and especially one of this length. I mean, you guys let me write it out a little bit. And as you mentioned, have the five sources. But it kind of turned into a labor article which is probably even better for golf course industry. I think it's going to speak even more to your audience. Usually I should also interject that when I receive an assignment for you guys or send you guys a pitch that you accept just the way that I like to work, there's generally not too much back and forth. But for this one, we had more emails than usual as this article kind of organically took shape, and I wanted to make sure that I was getting Guy, that I was getting you guys exactly what you wanted as this article started to take its own path, because I started to realize that the best perspective for this article was twofold, to have Hispanic supers who are predominantly Spanish-speaking, and to also have Caucasian supers who are predominantly English-speaking to make Sure, that there was a balance. So it was essentially talking to the Hispanic supers about their journey to learn English, even though, you know, some of them were basically raised in the United States. But then, inversely, for the Caucasian supers to learn Spanish.
0: And it was Rafael who said when he was learning Spanish, he would say things like bulb light instead of light bulb. And when he was corrected, he wouldn't get upset with people. He would just thank them because he wants to improve. You talked with Javier Campos, who's at California Golf Club in San Francisco, started there at 17 and became the head superintendent by 30, which is incredible for anybody. He said that probably 95% of his crew is Spanish-speaking. Rafael said that if you're fluent with a Spanish-speaking crew, you can save about, by his estimation, this is one club, it's anecdotal, but still... 20% About 20% of your time in getting things done. You're just more productive. So, especially from the, the native speakers, the folks who grew up speaking Spanish and learned English. We'll get to the native English speakers here in a minute, but those guys, again, just anecdotal evidence, but there's a real ROI there. There's real numbers uh, that can be crunched. And, and like you said, this is a business story as much as it is a culture story.
1: And that's why you're a good editor, Matt, because if there were two or three pull quotes that I would pluck from this article, you probably referenced both of them. Um, I'll start with uh, Rafael Barajas and some of the things that, that he said for individuals that want to climb that ladder. He basically said, you know, you have to either learn English or you have to learn it the hard way. And I think that He expressed to me, this is what I took from it, is that he learned it the hard way. He was a native uh, Spanish speaker. He moved to California from Mexico, I think, when he was 14, started working at a, a golf course shortly thereafter. And you referenced the bulb light in the light bulb and some of those small barriers that he, and to I guess extend that quote, one of the things he said, and I'm taking directly from Raphael's words, he said, when I got corrected, I wouldn't get upset with people. I'd thank them for the help. He continued to say, if I wanted to make progress to adapt and evolve and be competitive, I didn't have a choice. You have to play with the same tools as everybody else. Otherwise, you're just not going to win. you can kind of take from that, that he's a competitive guy. And again, I think that really speaks to your readership, assistant superintendents, or maybe people that are just starting in the uh, agronomy trade, that it's a competitive industry. And to work your way up, the more tools you have in your toolbox, the better. And while you might think of chemical sprays and mowers and things like that, this is a crucial cultural tool that the better you are, the
0: faster that you're gonna rise up that rung. And especially, I mean, this is tying in with labor. We mentioned it earlier. The percentage of folks who work in this industry are only probably going to increase uh, among Latinos uh, just because so many clubs are having issues staffing. Everybody in the country is having trouble staffing these days, but golf courses always. And you're going to have to go to different avenues. You're going to have to tap into different areas of the labor market. But that Latino workforce is always going to be there if you treat them well, if you treat them with respect. I feel like, what do you think? I mean, you're in Southern California, probably 10, 15 years ahead of where the country will be as a whole in terms of having to know Spanish. How much Spanish do you know, Judd?
1: I think I took six years oh, wow. in, uh, in high school, maybe even dating back to middle school, into high school. So I still, I still have some rudimentary skills.
0: If you had to go down... <laughs> Say somebody's car is broken down outside the convenience store. Are you able to talk enough with them to, to get them going? or
1: I will borrow from what some of the other respondents uh, in this article told me, whether it be uh, Christopher Bean right down the street here from Desert Willow Golf Resort, or Sarah Ryan on the coast. Uh, she's the golf course superintendent at Mountain Gate Country Club in Los Angeles, a, a great, uh, great 27-hole club. And that it's a, it's a bit of a mix. And I, I, and I would say the same. I could get uh, passable. I could do uh, Spanglish to, to borrow that term. And even as those two said, and obviously your listeners to this program aren't going to be able to see this, but there's something to be said for gesturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you can get a lot of communication across by mimicking or using your hands. And those are some of the things that the predominantly English speakers do on the golf course to communicate. You mentioned Javier Campos, really impressive, still young guy. He's the head super at a very uh, uh, well-regarded uh, club. That's the Cal Club in, uh, in San Francisco. As you mentioned, he's worked there since, uh, since he was young. Uh, he's probably, I would have said of the five I spoke with, the most bilingual. You know, before he had that head super job, he served as a go-between between the, uh, his, uh, his predecessor at the job, I believe was Mr. Bastis, Thomas Bastis, who had the same passable Spanish skills. But Javier served as a go-between, and that's something that also came up a lot in these conversations is that on a lot of staffs, if it's not the head super that is bilingual, there is someone that serves as a go-between on a lot of these staffs that can go between the head super and a predominantly Hispanic crew. You mentioned the importance of time and efficiency, and they all seem to express that that was huge, that you can save so much time with some middleman. If you're not bilingual yourself, that if there's a middleman there, it's crucial.
0: Well, and clearly, uh, I think he's still only, what, 34 years old, maybe 35? Yeah. Uh, Became the head superintendent at 30. And I think you and I both know that everybody who was involved in that hiring at Cal Club probably looked at him and saw that bilingual ability and true bilingual ability. And I mean, that catapulted him obviously ahead of every other candidate. Uh, It was one of the biggest skills, I imagine. He
1: also referenced in one of the first things that he said, I didn't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but as we referenced Cal Club, impressive club, uh, aptly lauded club here on the West Coast, if not the entire country, that for him, the ability to communicate with their membership Mm -hmm. uh, was also a huge factor. It wasn't just communicating with staff, but they obviously have an impressive membership there. And for him, the ability to uh, communicate clearly with the members was also a huge factor.
0: Well, and now we've gone just beyond Spanish in terms of being able to communicate with your crew, but also being able to communicate with your members and being comfortable with everybody. And that's, that's a whole nother skill, but uh, maybe another story. Again, of course, industry little, down the road.
1: little, little different, little different rabbit hole, but as it was one of the first things that he mentioned, uh, I did want to include that in the article because of the emphasis that, that he put on that language skill, not just with the staff, but also with the people at the club.
0: If we shift gears to the native English speakers you talked with, Christopher Bean, who's at Desert Willow Golf Resort right down the street from you in Palm Desert, Sarah Ryan, who you mentioned, who's at Mountain Gate Country Club in LA. What was the difference from them in your reporting when you talked with the native Spanish speakers and the native English speakers? Was there any shift that you noticed in reporting and talking with them and how they approached Learning the other language.
1: There were a few different things that uh, I mean, Christopher Bean. You know, he, he he told me that he tried things like the Rosetta Stone, and that you know that that's that's not easy to do. I mean, becoming fluent or learning a different language. However, you want to attempt to do that, but if you want to actually study it, it's not an easy thing to do. Both he. And Sarah also referenced, and this spoke to me, being a native Minnesotan, that based on their backdrops, I believe Chris is from um, Ohio. I think Sarah is from Michigan. It has so much to do with where you grow up. Both of them showed a desire to be better at Spanish because they recognized, again, the value of getting things done faster, Uh, not needing as much interpretation, although they both seem to get by just fine. But even more than that, and this kind of trended back, Matt, to the cultural aspect, that there's a degree of trust there. Uh, The better that you can communicate with your staff, the more common ground you can gain by way of language. They're going to trust
0: you a bit more. In terms of them both being from the Midwest, this is something else. You, as you just mentioned, and we've talked about it, I think on every appearance that you've had on this podcast, you are from Minnesota. I was born and raised in Ohio. And there's something to be said for being a Midwesterner, but we're all Americans. The folks you live around now are are West coasters, obviously down South, there's Southerners. And so there's these different regional biases. There's different, different regional cliques. It's very similar in the Latino culture. It's just different countries. This is another thing, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you touched on it just a little bit in your story. You know, Mexicans are not the same as Dominicans, are not the same as Puerto Ricans, are not the same as Venezuelans, are not the same as if you have any Brazilians on your, on your crew. I mean, everybody is just a little different in how you work with them, how you approach them, how they, how they click together on the crew, right?
1: Yeah, and this was another potential rabbit hole, and this could have made the article thrice as long, but uh, Rafael Barajas expressed this uh, in Florida, and Sarah Ryan from Los Angeles said this too. I mean, it's not just as cut and dry as English to Spanish, in that they both have people from a lot of different uh, countries on their respective staff. So it could also be like pigeon learning Hawaiian uh, pigeon, or it could be people um, from uh, Cuba or, uh, or South America, uh, or it could be, you know, different dialects of Spanish that are also involved. And I kind of went back and forth on that personally and how much I should include in the article about that. And I decided to just kind of glaze over it, to gloss over it a bit, to be, to be perfectly honest, because I was worried that to go down that hole could have added... 2,000 more words and maybe skew from our objective a little bit. I mean, again, I think primarily we're talking about English to Spanish and vice versa and being bilingual between those two languages. But it ain't just those two languages, man. There can be a lot more in the mix in the melting pot.
0: Have you heard any other languages on the course? I'm I'm sure somewhere there's, where were we? There There were five or six different languages and everybody was on their own crew, but it was one year there was Russian, There's a group of Russians, and I cannot remember what course this was. It was two years ago we saw them. Uh, French, German, anything else that you've heard in your reporting? I have not, and this kind of goes back to the onset of our chat,
1: is that I feel like I noticed, I've been here in Southern California about 11 years now, noticed pretty quickly that the vast majority of men and women doing the work on the grounds, 95% out here, probably 98% Man, are Hispanic. And as you kind of move up the golf course ladder, the superintendents, it's pretty 50-50 between the head super being a Caucasian man or woman or a Hispanic man. And then generally pound for pound, the head pro or the general manager being a Caucasian man or woman. So it's it's pretty uniform out here. And I haven't just seen that in the Coachella Valley and and Palm Desert, California, but pretty much throughout
0: SoCal. If you remember back to when you moved out in about 2010, you say the breakdown is about half and half between Caucasians and Latinos. What was it in terms of superintendent breakdown 10 years ago? It it couldn't have been half and half then, was it?
1: No, I got to think. I obviously don't have an exact stat on that. And I've dug into this in the past a little bit when it really caught my attention to try to figure out has there ever been some study done or some labor study done about what the percentage is. I don't think there's been a formal study done. I think it was probably leaning a little bit more Caucasian as far as the head super. But as Rafael Barajas told me in this story, when he looks at uh, uh, superintendent directories, not only does he see more and more head superintendents That are Hispanic, but more assistant superintendents, which is to say that as we maybe not just look 10 years back, but 10 years from now, we could see a lot more head supers being of uh, Hispanic descent. That would not surprise me to see that out here in the desert, to be honest.
0: It will be interesting to see because I feel like that number is going to tick up in Southern California, in Texas, in Florida. It's just how far behind as the rest of the country. Will it it catch up to these numbers in 2030, 2040? Who knows? One of the great questions for this industry moving forward.
1: Yeah. And obviously, as referenced a few times.
0: A lot of it depends on where you live. Mm -hmm. I know you have a reporting trip to go on here in a few minutes, so I'll leave you with two questions, Judd. One, what was left on the cutting room floor between reporting and writing this story? You said it could have been, I think it was about 2,000 words. You said it could have been about three times as long. What what didn't make it into the final copy that you would have loved to have included?
1: I did reference the fact, albeit briefly, that it's not just the English, to Spanish, that there are other cultures and other languages at play on staffs, and so there were some quotes on that and some of the other cultures that, um, again I, I just I opted to not include that. I thought it took us in a little different direction, really enthused to see when the magazine comes out because I ended up with a lot of great content that I didn't really think flowed in the main body, so I created it as a sidebar. so I hope that that worked. but there were a few pretty fascinating things and techniques or attempts that different uh, supers or their respective courses have tried in the past to create more opportunities for bilingual communication. Javier Campos told me that when he was the assistant at the Cal club, that they actually offered complimentary classes for their staff, that they had it right after lunch. I did it did about 45 minutes. And he told me that about 75% of the staff actually took part in those classes. Uh, they wanted to learn better English. You know, he said those classes had discontinued, not, because of a lack of popularity but because of his job now it wasn't quite as necessary because he could do the go-between translating for everybody being being fluent in both something else that uh christopher bean from desert willow told me and i was curious i i think you've been to the uh, the conference the annual conference the mm-hmm. gcs i a i i've been there um once the only time i've had to uh, opportunity to meet guy in person. I don't think we met in person though at San Diego a couple years ago, was that they're actually classes. and there's literature on hand. A couple of the uh, pieces of literature that Chris referenced was a uh, Spanish for golf course maintenance and workplace Spanish for golf course superintendents and landscapers, which is all to say that this article, while I don't think something like this has exactly been written, there's definitely an awareness in the industry uh, of the value of being able to speak both language. And the uh, GCSAA is, has certainly recognized that and written
0: what I gather to be pretty extensive literature to that effect. Look forward to maybe seeing that at the in-person show next year, which uh, it will be great to hit the road and see everybody again. And if you're there, we have to get together. The last question that I have for you today, is there anything in your reporting that you've already implemented into your everyday life? Any, you mentioned some of those tips and tricks that you included as a sidebar, any of those or anything else that you've already looked at and said, this is brilliant. I'm going to start incorporating this already.
1: The next time I meet with Chris Bean at, uh, at desert willow, uh, whom I have the pleasure I should mention to, uh, to work with and play at their awesome, uh, Couple of golf courses here. A lot. I, I do want to see that literature. Uh, we just uh, we just talked about it. I haven't had opportunity to get my hands on those uh, on those documents or those pamphlets that he referenced that he got from the GCsAA GC, uh, conference. Uh, and so I want those. I, I want to have those uh, in my own toolbox. Uh, I think it's going to serve as an asset for me for for future reporting.
0: Well, he is Judd Spicer, a regular and longtime golf course industry contributor. A great story, a must-read story in the June issue, Language of the Grounds. Make sure you read it with Tim Morgan's latest Inside the Ropes column, Como say They are great complementary pieces with each other. Judd, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Appreciate it, man.
0: My next guest on the podcast, again, a first-timer, not necessarily a long-timer. He's been a member of the golf course industry family for a little over a month. You have seen his name maybe on the website, not yet in the magazine. That's coming in the next issue. Jack Gleckler, rising senior at Ohio University. And I guess unofficially your, your title is intern. I think there's a more formal title, but... Uh, Guy tried to give me
2: title of like editorial assistant or something like
0: that, something more friendly. He called it. Guy has, I think, had five or six different job titles in his seven years at golf course industry. So he is a big fan of tweaking just a little bit. Editorial assistant sounds better.
2: Yeah, but renaming me—that's just one step. He
0: gets a different title every year at this point, five, six Five, six different titles. He's been here seven years. So you are, unlike me, a very good golfer. You are also a very good reporter, a good writer. Your first story in the magazine, let's start there, and then we will backtrack and get a little more information about you for everybody. Your first story, in case folks have not seen it, it is on the website. It will be in the notebook section of the June issue, Real Talk with Real Text. And this story went over very well online because you talked with Trent Manning, Uh, an equipment technician who runs a weekly podcast with other equipment techs. I've listened to it. It's a great show. If folks don't listen to it, real turf talk, fantastic podcast. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your first story for the magazine. All right. So basically when I initially
2: reached out to Trent to, you know, say, Hey, I'm an intern for golf course industry magazine. This is going to be my first story. I'd like to talk to you about it. He was more than willing to really talk to me about it and, kind of just getting insight into how he really kind of managed his podcast. He'd always had it in mind and COVID didn't really slow him down at all. In fact, it probably accelerated the process a little bit more. And he'll like, you can tell when you listen to it, he's not, he's even admitted he's not like a professional podcaster. He's just gotten into the game and it kind of gives that more like a feel, like a feeling of just like raw, just kind of two guys or two people with mics just, talking back and forth about an industry they really love they care about he's been in the industry for like 20 some odd years at this point just a little over 20 and it's you know it's just him and a guest just talking about the industry they really care about and talking about in in a field that they feel like doesn't have enough attention
0: and trent forgive me for this i've listened to the podcast and i have forgotten where he is he's down south right yeah, he's down by uh, Atlanta. Okay. Is it um, Ansley? It, it's okay. Ansley. Ansley. What did you learn about him when you talked with him? Obviously, there's the podcast. Obviously, there's the long history in the industry. But what did you learn in, in one of your first interviews for the magazine? You know, just talking to him, I kind of asked, you know,
2: just about him. He's just a very genuine and open guy which probably you know helps the podcast a lot like he's just willing to talk and isn't really afraid of just letting people know yeah this is what i do and i'm super proud of it so i just want to share it with people like he's more than willing to answer whatever question you have even if it's just like the most mundane thing he'll just spill because he's pretty much he considers himself and his job like an open book like he loves to talk about it he's just got a passion for what he does
0: well, and he asks a lot of questions. Oh yeah, on the podcast as well.
2: Yeah. yeah, I remember him telling me during the interview uh, that a lot of the questions he kind of he ran through people who were listening to the podcast. He was like, "What kind of questions would you want to hear?" Because he doesn't really consider the podcast his. He more considers it just a podcast for turf for turf texts by turf texts, and he just considers himself like the host. Like he doesn't consider himself the owner of it. It's just a podcast he hosts.
0: A caretaker of sorts, a very apt position for, for an equipment technician. Very. What else are you working on right now for uh, the magazine, for the website? Glad
2: you asked. Tomorrow I have a story do, story deadline for a short course, which is uh, a short course, a nine hole par three course in cook county illinois called golf center de plains in De plains illinois it's just north of chicago really like a 15 minute drive from o'hare airport and it's like nestled right between all like these private clubs and these bigger public courses in the cook county area and like the big big wide open chicago golf market and it's this little par three nine hole course and it's kind of worked in its little niche because it's kind of it's very cheap and it's the only fully lit golf course in all of chicagoland so they kind of attract people using those you know using the price and using like how much of the day is spent just golfing like you can uh golf after 6 p.m until midnight in the middle of the summer for maybe four dollars more than usual and it's kind of carved out this little niche and a niche and the entire staff that's worked on it is super dedicated to it and should be a really interesting story
0: there is, I don't know if it's necessarily an irony, but there is an odd quality to the fact that the only lighted golf course, you said in the state of Illinois or just Chicago? No, just Chicago. Okay. Just Chicago. The, the only lighted course in Chicagoland is so close to Wrigley Field, which famously did not have lights until August 9th, 1988, or didn't have a game with lights until August 9th, 1988. I don't know. Just go a, figure. Odd little. Twist there, Chicago and their lights is weird. Go figure. What else did you learn about that course? Obviously, I don't want to, don't want you to give too much away. That's a short course story, and it's a short story. It's two pages, so don't mm-hmm. don't use all your good stuff here on the podcast. All right, so I kind of
2: learned through their superintendent of revenue facilities, Brian Panic, that kind of their maintenance uh, is a little unorthodox since it's open so early. It opens so early and closes so late that they kind of have to sneak it in like while people are golfing because usually the tea times are like booked solid pretty much every day through the summer until midnight. So they kind of have to like the maintenance crews have to like sneak in during tea times while people are hitting kind of like sneak around and kind of just dodge golf balls. And I don't know how, I don't know if that's unusual, but I just think it's kind of funny that they kind of have to like sneak
0: in the maintenance because it's such a, such a busy course. I mean, you hear about courses out west where they're on at four four thirty five o'clock mm-hmm. that that's a whole nother beast if you're open till midnight
2: oh yeah god like it's so weird having a course like it's got to be so like strange working on a course that's like it doesn't open and close with the sun like it can open at six and then close way after and then just wait six more hours and the day starts over again like that's got to be such a
0: weird experience working there that is wild and that is i'm sure brutal for the whole crew oh you you almost have to go split split squad right
2: yeah yeah like it's gotta just like you gotta just break it up and kind of work from there work back
0: well let's talk a little bit about you as well so when guy and i interviewed you for this position gosh i don't even know was it february march somewhere back then you were probably still covering ohio Bobcats basketball season. They had a good run. Mm-hmm. We knew you liked golf. I don't think either of us knew how good of a golfer you were you. Captained your high school team, and when we went out as a group to Fowler's Mill, a Pete Dye design east of downtown Cleveland, uh, near Chesterland, you you had drives. You had a nice short game. You could putt like you have an all around good game. I I don't
2: know. It's just when I watch myself play, I don't consider it myself a good game because me and my dad has always been, like, this super big golfer. Like, he was the charter member of his little golf club, Oak Harbor Golf Club, in our town, hometown of Oak Harbor. And he's been playing pretty much four or five times a week during, like, nine months of the, out of the year since 1964. So if that gives you any hint as how old my dad is and how young I am, uh he's been playing pretty much and he goes on like these golf trips he went to he played at st andrews in scotland uh back about 2018 it was the summer after i graduated high school he went on this week-long trip to scotland to go golfing and he has still has the photo on his fridge Mm -hmm. of the photo he took in front of um st andrews uh the golf clubhouse and so he always kind of impressed some golf onto me. So I've been golfing since pretty much I could stand up by myself. And so I played pretty much all through elementary school, through middle school, high school. I was on JV mostly, and then junior senior year I moved into varsity. So I pretty much, and then I've kind of fallen out of the habit once I got into college because it's been so busy with the newspaper, and, you know, traveling and doing all this stuff with classes. But I still try and golf as often as I can.
0: How often does a busy, rising senior in college actually get to golf? Is it like once or twice a month, maybe? I, yeah, it's probably closer to once a month, I'd say. There are some good courses in Southeast Ohio, and I'm blanking on a lot of them because it's been a long time since I've been there. But the the OU course, it's still what? It's a nine-hole?
2: It's a nine-hole course, and it's kind of – it plays around the Hocking River. So that's kind of – it's always interesting. It's super interesting, and it's fun to – Fun to play, but you know, having a nine-hole course, and then they have Athens Country Club out west of Athens a little bit. So I want to get out there one day if I can, maybe finagle myself in there.
0: Well, you have you have some credentials now. I'm sure mm-hmm. I'm sure you can, you know, make a call and say, on. "Hey, I'm doing a story." You could do a story easily. I could. Let's, yes. let's get that on the docket. How else? How else uh, would you describe yourself? As a golfer, you, you've been out with your dad since you were just a toddler. And you... Oh, yeah, even before that, uh, my mom
2: and dad always used to tell me stories separately, by the way, of how uh, after my dad got, a whole, got off of work, he would pick me up from the babysitters. And then because uh, both my parents worked, so I was at like a day babysitter, like a half daycare ran by one person, Billy, amazing, not relevant, but pick me up from the babysitters. He'd take me out to the golf course. He'd take me in my booster seat, strap me into, like, the cart basket right behind the seats of the golf cart, secure me down, and then he'd play uh, Thursday night or night leagues for about two more hours and then probably pop in around 8 o'clock with me and just be whirring around. And so, basically, I've been exposed to golf since even before I was walking.
0: I cannot imagine. That sounds like something that my – parents generation would have done although your dad and my dad are, are pretty similar in age but i'm 16 years older than you like that's something <laughs> that would have happened to us in the 80s or you know folks who were born in the 70s we would have been strapped into the back of a golf cart now i feel like there'd be more restrictions your dad got away with this
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh my dad again yeah he was born in 1950 so he's super the new rules don't apply to me it's 80s or nothing basically
0: so you don't remember it, obviously, but being a baby strapped in the back of a, of a club car or whatever Oak Harbor had, looking around at the golf course, probably looking up at the sky, I imagine your parents told you. And Jack, you loved it. You couldn't get on the course often enough.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, Honestly, just with how much my dad kind of went out, I just kind of got used to being at the golf course about five times a week. And every Sunday, he'd wake me up at like... 6 a.m. or even sometimes before, and then we'd be out on the, he'd grab me McDonald's and I'd get a little Egg McMuffin and a little orange juice and he'd say, all right, here's your clubs. Go out in the driving range if you get bored. If you want to, play nine holes. I'm going to be out here. And I was probably like maybe eight, ten, and he let me just go out on the course by myself because he was a charter member. So he was like, "Yeah, it's fine. It's my kid. He won't do anything bad. Did you ever? No, no. I mean, Not really. I tried to fight a goose once when I was, like, 14. I was just trying to, like, scare it off with, like, my four iron.
0: Well, I mean... Nothing...
2: Yeah, nothing bad.
0: You and I have been in a cart together cursing at gooses already, so... Oh, yeah. Uh, So you never... You never did anything to make the superintendent at Oak Harbor scream out your name or anybody on the crew scream out your name. Clekler! Nothing horrendous.
2: I I wasn't ever, like, a Ferris Bueller. I never really... Wanted to do bad things. I was just kind of hanging out, just kind of doing my own thing. Just kind of, yeah. While my dad was out, I was either on the putting green or just whacking them on the, on the driving range, just knocking them over. And then there'd be the guy with the cart uh, picking balls, which was actually one of my first summer job in high school, too. Okay, this is kind of me, but I would like, aim for him, too. But that's like a golf tradition at this point. If you're on the driving range, aim for the guy in the cart. He had, a, he had a cage, so it wouldn't have hurt him.
0: So you these are your credentials. You you are a friend of turf. You are a friend of turf pros. Even before you started working for the magazine, you had respect for the course. So everybody listening will enjoy that. Yeah. I think my
2: biggest problem was when I was like eight, the biggest problem was sometimes I just forget to replace my dividends, which was sometimes was more often than not a lot. So my dad would kind of just, he kind of, snuck around like he did kind of like follow me behind a little bit if he wasn't like golfing or if he was done and I wasn't, I was still on the course. He'd kind of like followed me behind and kind of just see me whacking and not picking up my divots. And some, one time I remember I'm like on seven, I'm on the 17th hole coming down It's this dog head dog leg left and I'm about 150 yards out. I'm like, I whack it like maybe 50 feet. I flub the shot. I get this big chunk of turf out. And just kind of goes flying. And I'm like, I'm mad because I'm like, I'm super young. So I'm still super mad about it. And I'm just kind of like flubbing my club around on the thing. Not hard after I hit the divot. So I wasn't really ripping up any more grass. And I just kind of go to my bag and I start walking. I hear, hey, from around the dog leg. I'm like, "What, what was that? My dad was looking for me at 17. So he followed me and was just like, called me out. He was like, pick that divot up. I saw you didn't fix that go fix it so he just called me out like no one else is around so it's just me and him scream like him just like yelling at me it's like pick that divot up right now I'm like dad why I just want to go he's like pick that divot up right now so that's yeah it's my dad kind of just instilled me respect the course respect the game have fun don't get stressed out took me a lot longer to finish that learned that last lesson but
0: Good, solid parenting. If we don't have him on the podcast, we at least have to meet him this summer.
2: Oh, you'll get to meet Gumby. Gumby would love to be on the podcast (laughs) if he could figure out how technology works.
0: So you said a minute ago, this happened when you were super young. You are still super young. And I say this as someone who is 37 with an almost kindergartner. You are 21 years old. And I feel like labor comes up in every conversation I have with anybody in any capacity in the industry. But I'm curious about your perspective here. and I feel like a lot of turf pros and superintendents, directors of agronomy, will be interested in this. From a labor perspective, from a player perspective, and you are not necessarily the normal 21-year-old. You're very into the game. You've been around the game all your life, but still you are 21. What is the 21-year-old's perspective on golf right now in 2021?
2: Honestly, I feel like I, in the last few years, it's been making a comeback. Like it's getting more and more, you know, usual to see guys who are like, we want tea times. We want to go out on Sunday and just, you know, have some fun and just, you know, play golf. Like have a casual Sunday golf or like a Saturday, like weekends are the golf weekends, at least for more and more people over the last few years. Cause I remember even when I was in like high school, like I'd ask people if they want to go golfing on the weekends, people were like, Nah, not really. We're not into it. It's not, it's not our thing right now. But now that we're in college, more and more guys are getting into it and kind of just, you know, taking it more casual. I feel like that's just part of like our very big Gen Z, like we're the very early Gen Z people. They're growing up and they're starting to like get more warmed up to golf, I would say. Guys who were like maybe interested in high school, but never played it much. And now, you know, they have money to spend. So they're kind of spending buying clubs and balls and, you know, going out on the course because now they can afford to. So I feel like guys my age, people my age are just really kind of starting to get back into it because now they have like they have jobs and they're in college and they have a little bit more money to spend than they're in
0: high school or they're younger. In terms of those jobs, you'd mentioned that you worked for a while at your local course at Oak Harbor. Anybody else your age anybody you went to high school with anybody you went to college with follow you to the crew even for just a summer
2: uh yeah uh there was just uh there was one girl who was on the girls team who worked in uh the pro shop as like um at the worked in the pro shop you know rank stuff up and then she'd uh set up tea times and do all stuff that she was very much more an inside person and then we had two guys who were one and two years younger than me, respectively. Uh, they were brothers, Alex and Jordan Millier. These two loved golf, probably even more than I did, because they were just like they're just good old boys who just like like ha- just like whacking the ball and having fun. And they were good. Like Jordan, Jordan was probably the better golfer, was a way better golfer than me, even on the golf team in like junior year. He's hitting like hovering around forty. And they did maintenance crew for a long time, like they just worked out in the back, they whipped weeds, they mowed uh, greens, they, you know, just did like all the stuff that the older guys didn't want to do. And I was mostly like out on the driving range picking balls for like four hours a day, just for more pocket money.
0: What would it take to get an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old out working on the course five or six days a week? We've had so many stories in the last few months, but it's always good to get this anecdotal information as well. What would it take for you to do that in any capacity or your friends matter, I would, uh, ooh,
2: uh, you know, honestly, I would say there's always going to be like the interest from like guys who are already kind of into golf, just kind of kind of into golf or play it casually, you know, just kind of approach that audience or even guys who, you know, maybe aren't familiar with golf courses or anything you say, just kind of get in, like approach them and just kind of, highlight show them that it's not you know they're like just make it more aware a lot like trent manning is doing for turf with the podcast you know just kind of bring more attention to it like saying hey you have an option here to work here if you want to work inside or you want to work in a pro shop if you want to work with management or just you know do anything if you like working outside work with your hands work with the uh, maintenance crew like there's options here and there's plenty of options just on the golf course
0: before i let you go Anything you're looking forward to over the next, I think we have you here for at least seven and a half, eight more weeks until you have to go back to Athens, Ohio, the greatest place on earth. Uh, Anything you're looking forward to working on anybody you really want to meet. Okay. So
2: there's one story that we're going to be working on. I'm going to be, I'm sort of working on right now too. Uh, I just got one of the interviews done last week and it's on this one course in Oklahoma that I don't want to really give too much away because I'm still collecting information. I don't want to get that no, information. No, not too much, wrong. not too much, but it's basically on this one course built in like a really sandy forest, the area full of like all these invasive trees and then kind of just revamped the entire course and made it more natural to the environment. And it's going to be super cool. And I'm having fun, really researching that. So I'm really excited for, you know, just that story and in general, you know, just, learning more, collecting research, you know, looking things up more, collecting interviews, talking to as many people as I can, just about the story I'm working on, just kind of having the full perspective and kind of getting as much info as I can to make the most complete story I can.
0: We have a few road trips planned. I know uh, you're joining us in Dublin. By the time this podcast comes out, it will be a day in the future, the 20th annual Keepers of the Green down in Dublin, Ohio. You're going to meet Dr. Michael Herdson. I think we have a road trip up to the Buffalo area, Buffalo and Batavia planned anywhere else you want to get to before the summer is over.
2: Oh, you know, I don't have any off the top of my head, but you know, wherever we go and we'd be excited to go because road trips are fun, especially when it's the golf courses.
0: Well, if there's any course, if you're listening to this, you work at any course within say, I don't know, four hour, five hour drive. How far are you on drive Jack? Four or five hours of, let's say, either Cleveland or the Toledo area. Uh, reach out if you want Jack to come by one day this summer. Uh, we'll send you out. We'll get some more road trips out for you. Sounds good to me. Get those reps in. Read Jack Gleckler, our intern, our summer associate, our editorial associate. I don't know exactly what his title is. He's doing great work. Five weeks in. Uh, look for his byline on golfcourseindustry.com in the June issue and probably the July and August issue as well of the magazine and follow him at the Jack Gleckler. That's T H E Jack Gleckler on Twitter. Jack, thanks so much. Thank you. My thanks again to Judd Spicer and Jack Gleckler for taking some time to go beyond the page. And my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the superintendent radio network, new episodes of beyond the page greens with envy, off the Course and Tartan Talks right here every Tuesday. We did have a bit of a delay over the last week. We had some issues with our email server and our back end, but we're back up and running now. Our June issue is also back up and running with Judd's story and Tim's column about the importance of being bilingual. Lee Carr's wonderful cover story about American Dunes. My story about the challenges faced over the last year by minor league baseball groundskeepers and so much more. Check it out at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. You can read more industry news and notes in our Fast and Firm newsletter, delivered every Tuesday to your email inbox. Sign up online at www.golfcourseindustry under the subscribe tab. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me. Matt Lowell. Our columnists are incredible Terry Buchan, Henry DeLosier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morrigan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some fantastic regular contributors too Tyler Bloom, Brett Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, who you just heard from, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfell. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our intern is the aforementioned and ebullient Jack Wetler. Our sales team includes Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Lori Scala and Caitlin Sellers make sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrell handles advertising and production. Irene Sweeney does more than anybody in this building can keep straight. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Ballman, and Patrick Briand make up our IT team. Nick Adams, the AG, Alexander Garrett, Clark Quick, Jay Boyden, and Kevin Caslow are our online and video experts. Thomas Vidmar handles our classifieds, but he has already received a promotion. He's over on our cameras now. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening.